0: Good morning. Good to see. Uh, great to see some visitors from past years of grace. at least see at least three different families here. It's great to see you. Uh, again, my name is Marshall and I'll be teaching on the verses that Walter just read for us. A couple things, I'll say more in my uh, weekly video this week, but uh, some of you know uh, that later this week I will be traveling to uh, East Africa. To Ethiopia, uh, I'm super excited about this trip. Uh, despite the, the length of the flight, I will be in Addis Ababa, and I will be working with one of our mission partners, teaching and preaching uh, to ministry leaders from some of the closed countries. I'll just say it that way uh, that surround Ethiopia. So it's a great opportunity, great privilege to be with people who are on the front line of mission. And uh, so the next time I preach, it will be in Africa, which is kind of a fun thing to uh, to say. Um, also, uh, many of you, uh, hopefully all of you, if you're a member, have heard about our renew campaign. Uh, about a month ago, we were able to purchase the building immediately to our west. Uh, we will possess it in just a couple of months. We've already closed on it. Uh, so exciting. Our aim is to renew our building so as to renew our mission, which Ian just said welcome, grow, serve. Uh, if you want more info, or if you want, please reach out to either me or to Leslie Farrell. Uh, or you can, one great way to find out more of what's going on is to actually watch on YouTube uh, the congregational meeting from last Sunday, July 2nd. That has more of the details, about a 10 or 15 minute explanation for me about how we got to this place. Uh, we're very, very excited about it. We are looking to finish our target raise of $775,000 to pay for that property and all that needs to happen to it. Uh, you can find commit cards. Leslie uh, will be in the uh, out by the uh, coffee table, or you can just uh, email her or me directly. Uh, we are hoping to have our commitments in by next Sunday in the gifts soon after. Very exciting time, renewing our building to renew our mission. Let me pray, though, before we look at these uh, pivotal and justly famous verses from Romans 12. God, when we come to the uh, topic of change, uh, it is both, I think for myself, I think it's initially just attractive and hopeful, uh, but then upon reflection of the years of my life, it can be discouraging. So Lord, I pray that we use these soaring words of Paul, these magisterial words of Paul, to encourage our hearts in the mercies of God, that we might grow, that we might change that we might love you and one another better be with us lord this morning in the teaching of your word i feel like i'm at a strange age for preacher and illustrations because i know this illustration is only going to resonate with people probably about on 10 years either side of me so i apologize for that Uh, but there was a band i don't even know if they're still together called the verve and they had a song Uh, called Bittersweet Symphony. It had a very famous, uh, the music, if you know it, the music could come back to you quick. If I could sing, it's a bittersweet symphony. And it's more known for the music, for the tune, but I want you to listen to the chorus. Even if you don't know the song, I want you to listen to the chorus and see if you resonate. No change. I can change. I can change. I can change. But I'm here in my mold. I'm here in my mold. I'm a million different people from one day to the next. I can't change my mold. Ever felt like that? I can change, I can change. I can't change. It resonates because we feel it. How do we change? We live in a culture that is obsessed with personal change. Uh, From kombucha to psirotherapy, right? Uh, From mindfulness to actual therapy, from diets to mantras. We are determined to change ourselves to make ourselves better, to live whatever it is, whatever a full human life looks like. We're determined to change. Now, we have been studying the book of Romans, and today we turn a major corner in the book. The first 11 chapters are about the gospel of God, the good news in Jesus Christ. That's what the first 11 chapters, actually it's what all 16 chapters are about. But the first 11 chapters are the theology where Paul lays out the hope of the gospel. But beginning here in chapter 12, verse 1, through the rest of the end of the book, this is about how to live, how to actually live out that gospel, what it looks to have Christian ethics, okay, in light of what Paul has explained is the gospel. Verses 1 and 2 that we're looking at this morning are a summary of that response to God's grace, Christian ethics, as it were. And in the verses and in the weeks to come, we will look at our relationship to God our relationship, this is in order actually, our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to one another, our relationship to our enemies, our relationship to the state, the political power, and our relationship to the law. Okay, so here he's laying the groundwork that he's going to unpack in all of those different scenarios in life. Others, ourselves, our enemies, the state. How do we live as Christians in light of the gospel in all of those relationships? Now, Christian ethics, Christian living, are important for all kinds of reasons. Let me list three. First, Christian ethics are are constitutive of the gospel, which is to say that it's not like the first 11 chapters of Romans are the gospel, and then we're going to have the application section here in these last uh, five chapters. No. These chapters are constitutive of the gospel. They are the gospel. You can't just kind of read the first 11 chapters and then kind of nod off and think Paul's making some application. But second... Christian ethics are always important because the world is watching. The world is watching us. And I might add, I believe the world is watching more than they used to. In my lifetime, Christianity, as a young boy, I can remember when uh, being a Christian, the stereotype was that is a good person. That is a person who is for the civic good. They are good to have citizens who are Christians in our country. And somewhere around the middle of my uh, life thus far, uh, it went from that to more of a how can you believe that? Some of you would remember 15 years ago or so, the new atheist movement, uh, led by people like Richard Dawkins, uh, The God Delusion, and Christopher Hitchens, uh, God is Not Great. And the stereotype in that generation, like I said 15 or so years ago, was that Christians were not intelligent. Uh, Christians are superstitious. Super, Christians are irrational. Miracles, virgin birth, all of that stuff. But in many ways, that may have paved the way for where we are today. But today, there is an outright hostility to Christians. Uh, the stereotype in our country, the stereotype of Christians, is that we are not just naive and unintelligent in our beliefs, but the stereotype is that we are intolerant and therefore dangerous in our actions. In our ethics, we are a threat to the well-being. So the stirrup goes towards others. So thinking about Christian ethics is actually—it's very important. Uh, it's very important. The old line by Saint Francis—I hope you have heard it: "Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words." My addendum to that is: we must make sure that our actions are rooted in the gospel. I'm going to say this twice because I think it's so important. And think about this later. I wish you—I wish I could, This line may work better in the sermon later. But we must make sure our actions are rooted in the gospel and not mere moralism. Let me say that again. As Christians, when we live out the line for St. Francis to preach the gospel and if necessary use words so that our words may be heard, we must seek that our actions are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ and not mere moralism. But a third reason, and this gets back to my opening bittersweet symphony, the third reason that ethics are important is because we want to change. Jesus says we can change. Paul, the Bible says we can change. And how do I change? How do we change? So to answer the question, how can I change, Paul leads us in the rest of the book by answering these three questions. the question three different ways this morning. To change, you must, and all these are connected, and I'll try to demonstrate that. You must view God's mercy. You must consecrate your body. And you must renew your mind. View God's mercy, consecrate your body, renew your mind. First, you must view God's mercy. Again, I do hope you have your Bible out. Romans chapter 12, it's page 947 on, in the Pew Bible. Um, chapter 12, verse 1 says this, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercy of God. Now, a good principle of Bible reading is whenever you see a therefore, you ask, what is it there for, okay? Uh, What is being connected? And what is connecting are the two halves of the book. Paul is beginning to describe Christian living, okay? And he's rooting it in the first half of the book. I like, this is the ESV, the, the RPU Bible. Is the English Standard Version. I really like the way, in this case, the NIV, the New International Version, translates chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy. God's mercy is a summary of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Now, mercy is not quite a synonym of grace. They're they're almost. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Mercy is avoiding what we do deserve, namely God's judgment. The gospel of Jesus is both grace and mercy, and when he's saying in view of God's mercy, that is shorthand for the gospel. In view of that, is shorthand for grace and mercy for the gospel. Okay, in Romans one to eleven, it's worth me going through this real quickly because Romans one to eleven is the greatest statement of the gospel of mercy. Okay. Let me just give you a couple of verses about mercy from chapter 9. We looked at just a few weeks ago. Chapter 9, verse 16, salvation depends not on man's effort or on desire, but on God who shows mercy. Chapter 9, 23, God's purpose is to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. And then chapter 11, verse 32, just a few verses we preached on at the end of last week, God has bound all of us to disobedience so that all, upon all, He may have mercy. You see, Christian ethics and this passage stand on the gospel. they stand on God's mercy. We just sang, "Thy mercy, my God, thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song," which is a poetic way of saying, "Thy mercy is how I live." And Paul is saying, "Look. <laughs> Do you view, do you see God's mercy? Do you see what God has done for you in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ? Because, friends, understanding God's mercy and grace, understanding the gospel is the only way you will have long term change in your life. Because if you're trying to change out of some fear, fear works. For a minute, okay? It doesn't work for long, and fear certainly does not work when things get tough, trouble, or persecution. Maybe you're trying to change by your own willpower. You know, pull yourself up by the boot. I'm just going to be disciplined. That's the same thing. It works for a bit longer for others than some, but it certainly does not work. Discipline does not when persecution comes, when suffering comes. The only thing that will change you, the only thing that will change you is Love. That's the only thing that will change you, knowing you are loved, knowing there's a personal God who feels loving to you and, more importantly, perhaps, has acted on his love. And God's mercy is nothing other than a demonstration of his love for you and for me. I say it all the time. I hope, it, I hope you hear this in your sleep. Uh, Jack Miller, that you are more wicked than you ever dared imagine and more loved and accepted than you ever dared believe. I say it all the time because the more you live into that, the more you believe, the more you will be changed. The conviction of God's mercy of the gospel is the basis of change, of Christian living. Knowing God loves you actually leads to change a life that pleases him. Uh, Tim Keller illustrates this with his usual brilliance. Imagine a father watching his son play baseball. They've been in the backyard. He's taught him how to throw, taught him how to hit, taught him to do all the things of baseball, and he loves his son fully. So when the game time comes and his son strikes out, the father's love or approval is not rocked at all, right? The son is assured of the father's love no matter the outcome. But the son, he wants to hit a home run, not to gain his father's love. ...but because he knows his father loves him. And so he wants to hit the room, not to gain the love, but because he is love. If he does not know his father's love, his efforts will actually not be for his father. His efforts will be for himself because he's trying to gain something. He's trying to gain approval. He's trying to gain love. But if he knows he's love, he is free to make the effort for his father... As we view God's mercy, just how much He has loved us, as we understand what He has done for us, we can begin to live a life pleasing to God. View God's mercy. Now, it is simply though, I'll just be honest, I actually think that 20 years ago, I thought the sermon could end right here. View God's mercy, think good thoughts. Have an intellectual understanding of the gospel. And the more you understand it, ideas have consequences. Uh, If you can understand it, therefore, then you will live it out. But that is not true. It's not how we were built. It's not how God made us. It's actually not what God's word said. We have to take that mercy and we actually have to knead it into our lives like a baker kneading the bread. Which brings us, secondly, to not just viewing God's mercy but consecrating our bodies. Let me read verse 1 again. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, I don't know, maybe this focus, that, that's, actually, that's the word for body. That's the word for flesh and blood body. And maybe that surprises you. Because you're like, Christianity is like, it's in the head, it's ethereal, it's spiritual, it's about going to heaven and floating on clouds and planting a heart and eating grapes. It's ethereal, Right? But no, Christianity is very much flesh and bone, right? Flesh and blood, dust. God is not interested in disembodied spiritual lives. He is very much concerned with our bodies, with what actually happens with your body. Way back in Romans chapter 3, which was back in the fall, when Paul is seeking to uh, expose the, 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 the extent of human depravity, that I'm quoting, or I'm riffing, I should say, on Romans chapter 3, verses 13 and the following. When he speaks of our depravity, he speaks in terms of our body tongues that practice deceit, mouths full of bitterness and cursing, feet that are swift to shed blood, eyes that turn away from God. So it should be no surprise that holiness, that following God, comes by offering our bodies feet that walk in his paths, lips that speak the truth and love. Tongues that bring healing, hands that lift up the fallen, arms that embrace the lonely, ears that listen to the cry of the uh, of the distressed, eyes that look to God, and all of this talk about our bodies is connected to Jesus and His body think about the apostles creed which we'll say in just a moment and I, I didn't actually i thought about this sitting in the pew right here so um but when we say the creed in just a moment just mark how many times the apostle creed says a statement about something that happened to jesus actual body his flesh and blood body born of the virgin raised from the dead descended into hell all about his body paul regularly makes ethical application to us based on the body of jesus christ Let me give you one example from Romans chapter 14. In Romans 14, we'll get to this in a few weeks. Paul says, don't basically harm fellow Christians. Why? First, because Jesus died for them in his body. Second, because Jesus is raised to be their Lord. And third, because he is coming again with his body. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's taking Jesus' body and he's making ethical application to us as followers of Jesus. John Stott says this, it's marvelous to see the great doctrines of the cross, the resurrection, and the second coming being pressed into service of practical day-to-day Christian behavior. Our bodies. <laughs> so what are we doing with our bodies? Present as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. This is your spiritual worship. Now when you hear the word worship, I wonder what you think. It'd be fun to do a little test, you know, what popped in your mind. I, you know, I think of Katie Ernst. I think of this, is what I th- when I, think, I hear the word worship, this is what I think of Katie in the band, right? Maybe you think of a guitar, maybe you think of piano, instrument. That's not what is being spoken of here. This is speaking of all of life. Paul is talking about when he says, offer your bodies as spiritual worship." he's talking about what you do at 4 p.m. on a Tuesday. He's talking about what you do at 10 a.m. on a Saturday. Worship is all of life. I love Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, and here's how he translates this verse. Eugene Peterson, here's what I want you to do, speaking as Paul to Christians. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place all of it before God as an offering. That's interesting. That the word that's translated here, uh, "spiritual worship," uh, there at the last of verse one, "spiritual worship." The Greek word there is—you'll actually pick this up even if you don't know Greek. Logikos. What do you hear there? Logic. (laughs) Because actually, in in the NIV, uh, the ESV, excuse me, uh, translation notes at the bottom of the page, I think actually say this: a better translation instead of "spiritual worship" actually may be "rational service." Rational service. Okay. Based on who God is, based on what he has done for me, and based on who I am, what does it look like for me to serve my Lord? I am to give God my rational service my whole life, how I speak with my spouse, how I treat the slow cashier at the grocery store, how hard I work, how I react to that bad or slow driver in front of me. What I say behind the shield of a screen of social media. What I set my eyes upon. Social media. Pornography. What I put into my body and how I put it in. Food. Booze. Drugs. How I take care of my body. How I sleep. How I eat. How I exercise. How I care for God's creation. All of that is to be pleasing to him. To be Lagakos worship rational to what God has created and given us now I wish I had more time so I'm just going to make a comment and then I'm going to illustrate it and the comment is this there is great power in habit and the habits that we have with our bodies let me illustrate it this way a friend of a friend actually it's a friend the friend is John Stone who actually will pre- be here this fall and preach one of my best friends and he'll be preaching here this fall and he had a friend I heard this in one of his sermons who all the time he had known this guy, he had moved away, but this guy had been sickly, he had been allergic, just not a healthy person. And so when John ran into him, uh, years later, the guy looked so much healthy, he just kind of radiated, he, lo- he lost weight, he didn't look sickly, he just looked full and healthy. And John said, what happened to you? How did you get, how did you get like this? He said, well, I became a vegetarian. And, well, and John, he said, well, what's h- great question, what's hard about being a vegetarian? He said, well, a lot of things are hard about being a vegetarian. He said, first of all, I get made fun of a lot. He said, second of all, when I'm with my friends, I often cannot find enough to eat. I just, there's not enough for me to eat. Third, I'm having to learn to love foods that I've hated all my life. Fourth, because my friends get frustrated with me, I've actually lost some friends. And then fourth, this might be my favorite. Sometimes the smells are so good... I just can't be around them. <laughs> like for barbecue, donuts, just, just can't be around them anymore. And so John, well, that sounds really hard. Why do you keep doing it? He said, look at me. I feel great. I sleep better. I have more energy. I feel more human. I feel alive. Now, I'm not telling that story to advocate being a vegetarian. I have zero intention of being a vegetarian. Zero. Zero. <laughs> I went to a spirit elephant once. (laughs) I'm getting that on public record. Um, But the metaphor holds. What I'm talking about is a life change by the gospel that is connected to your bones, your blood, your body, what you do. You are called, we are called to consecrate our body. And the reality is, as we do that, You're going to have to learn to love some things that you don't like. You might lose some friends, and there's some smells you just won't ever be able to be around anymore because of what they do to you. I'm saying a life change is hard. Consecrating the body is hard, and it is worth it. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So view God's mercy, consecrate your body Third to change in Christ, renew your mind. Verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now there's a negative here and there's a positive. The negative is do not be conformed. Again, Eugene Peterson, he translates it or paraphrases it this way. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Or N.T. Wright translates it this way, don't let yourselves be squeezed into the shape dictated by this present age. Now, this is really hard, okay? We are fish swimming in water, and we don't even realize how the culture around us forms us. We are consumed. I mean, to be, to living in 21st century America means, I don't care your age, this is not a grumpy old man, this is for all of us. It means that we're consumed with our own happiness and feeling good. All of us are. And it's been that way for a long time. This didn't start, you know, 19, I don't know. It's been that way for a long time. And we are simply not immune to that. This is why the great Swiss theologian, Karl Barth, called Christian ethics, I love this. Christi- uh, Karl Barth called Christian ethics the great disturbance. <laughs> the great disturbance. Because really living out this stuff of what Jesus did for us, really living out, it is a challenge and it actually breaks the status quo. So ask yourself, remember Jesus loves you before you ask it. Remember Jesus loves you before and after you ask this question. How, are I, how am I being conformed? And I want you to write this down at some point today, either right now or later. But what is an area of your life where you can say, I I don't fit in here because of Jesus. I, there's a part of this, this is a part of the culture where I don't fit because I'm following Jesus. And then for all of us, what is one thing that is conforming you to this culture, this world, that you simply need to cut out of your life? What is one thing that you simply need to cut out? I, I got to stop doing it. And there's the obvious things. And none of these are easy. Some of these take medical treatment. Some of these take therapy. Some of these take actual, this is not easy, okay? I'm going to say these things like, oh, you just quit it today. No. I mean, first one's very difficult if you're addicted. Internet pornography. That's an obvious one, right? But maybe it's more subtle. Maybe it's maybe it's your social media, which is just addictive to you. Maybe it's you're a compulsive shopper and you need to get rid of Amazon Prime. Maybe it's a club that you're a member of that the people there just form you in a way that just isn't good. Maybe it's the way you talk about other people. Maybe it's the way you talk about your spouse. I was in a coffee shop recently writing a sermon, and uh, the two women next to me, man, they were just tearing their husbands down. I was like, wow. And then you go and you play golf with a group of men, and it's the same thing on the other foot, right? Just tearing one another down to feel better about yourself. How hard it is to be married to this person, tearing our spouses down or talking bad about another. And if you think Paul or you think me or Paul are being mean, we got nothing on Jesus. You know what Jesus says at this point? If your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. That's what Jesus says, okay? All right. Now, let's talk about the positive. What does it mean to be transformed by the renewal of your mind? I love what N.T. Wright says. If the center of genuine Christianity, if the center of genuine Christianity is a mind awake is a mind awake. It's interesting, this word uh, transform, it's the Greek word metamorphos. Uh, the only other place that Paul uses it in his writings is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And Paul says this And we all, with unveiled faces, are beholding the glory of the Lord. And because of that, we are being transformed, same word, into the image of God from one degree of glory to another. Paul is talking about having your imagination captured by Jesus, increasingly thinking God's thoughts after him. Thinking God's thoughts after him. Now, a lot of times, even in my own thinking, I think I stop right there and I think, I need to think God's thoughts after him. Okay, what does God think about this, uh, you know, whatever issue, whatever. But I think it's more important to do this. What does it look like to think God's thoughts after him? About me. <laughs> what does it look like for you to think God's thoughts about yourself? I uh, have told this story recently, um, and I, I don't know how to illustrate this without being personal. And so um, here's what I do when I try to transform my mind. Uh, the joke, and, and the elders and, and some other leaders have heard me do this in a devotional. Uh, but I, every morning I get up and I, and I take my coffee and I go into my little study and I kind of have this corner and there's like one chair and there's one kind of ledge over here. And I always imagine that two of my really good friends come to sit with me. Uh, I'm right here in the middle and over here is Mr. Fear. He's a really good friend of mine. He comes talk to me every day. And then there's this other friend right here and he's a really good friend. His name is Mr. Not Enough. Marshall, you're not enough. That wasn't a good enough sermon. You're not a good enough dad. You're not a good enough this, that. You're not. Can you believe you hit that golf shot? You're not enough. These guys, they come visit me every morning. They try to drink coffee with me. So, what does it look like to trans? What is it for you? What are those things for you? You've got. It takes. It took me years to identify those guys. Years. You got to identify them, but then you got to invite somebody else to coffee with you you got to invite somebody, come coffee with me. And his name is Jesus, right? And what you've got to do is you've got to take his word and you've got to quote it to these guys. Because in the morning you're thinking, well, I'm afraid of this. What if I don't preach a good sermon? What if my sermon is not enough? What if I'm not a good enough dad? Like, I've got to take the gospel, view God's mercies, and knead it into my life. So, to my fear, I have to say Psalm 121, the Lord is my keeper. Whatever happens, I'm flying to Ethiopia this week. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord is my, Lord is my shepherd. To my Mr. Not Enough... Hebrews 13, the Lord is my helper. I am enough. I am loved. You have to identify what it is for you, and then take the gospel, view it, and need it into your life. Because, friends, by the mercy of God and a consecrated body and a renewed mind, I got good news. You can change. You can change not by lifting, not by your bootstraps, not by being strong, but by relying upon the gospel. You don't have to walk around in your sin anymore. I don't have to walk around in my fear anymore. Do I? Yes. But I don't have to walk around it. You can see sin lying dead at your feet. It is possible. You can change. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, consecrate your body and renew your mind. Let me pray for us. Our great God, we thank you. For Paul's hard work in getting us to this point to see the beauty of the gospel. What you, Jesus, have done for us in your birth, your death, your life, your resurrection, your ascension. Thank you for all of that, Jesus. Help us by your grace to more and more apply it, to live it out, to know it. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.